Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Crime at the Family Table. I am your host, Latanya, and I am joined here, of course, by the lovely and esteemed Alyssa. Hello, everyone. I love esteemed. I love that. <laughs> Listen, we think highly of you here. We got affirmations building, of course, of course. So before we begin, I would like to say thank you to our new listeners from across the globe. Um, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, supporting us and listening in. And we hope you continue to listen as long as we continue to do this. And we're just going to keep getting better and better. So thank you. Right. Like we only had to really skip one of our weeks. So like, and it's looking like we're pressing forward. We get more episodes down the pipeline. It's it's getting good. I'm very excited. Like we're already on episode five and everything's coming together. We're at this halfway mark. So five more episodes to go before we go on a short little finale for um, probably a month. And then we'll be right back with you with new and more interesting episodes. Okay. But so this week at Carbon Fans Table, we will be going over a childhood like favorite like his voice literally is a big part of me and Alyssa's childhood and like people know of him and like and may not even realize that they know of him um so I definitely and his name is Phil Hartman and like some of his like most notable works that I feel like people would know is Jingle All the Way where he uh was Ted Martin the annoying neighbor that was kind of like kind of the villain catalyst to Arnold Schwarzenegger's character he also did like um eight years on SNL um where he played many notable characters so I definitely feel like people are going to know about him but may not know about this case um because it did happen back in the 90s and it kind of like it was it was crazy for I feel like the time but I don't feel like it got as much press as some other famous cases that happened in the nineties, you know, it was, it was a big one for the day. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to bring up that I am watching Well, I have watched the Murdoch murders, murder in the South or something scandal in the South. Like I think that that's the tagline and wait. That family, baby, is small town and scandal, like, had a name. That's that's that show, that docuseries. It's crazy. Are you finished it, or are you still in the the midst of it? I finished it. So, like, I had finished it between two days, so I had watched some of it last night, and then, like, the rest of it today while I was working from home. And honestly, it was just, like, one of those things that kept me, like, I was like, oh, my God, like, what's going on? Like, what's going to happen next? Like, you know, because there's so many working parts to the whole show. Like, I feel like it's something that you also have to rewatch so you can get, like, some of the the people's names. But, like, I kind of get, like, where we're going at. Like, what where when it's just like I watched it I'm just like this family is crazy like there's no two ways about it like they ran Hampton County like like a mob like they ran it with an iron fist and they and they made it known like people of that area just knew that they could get away with anything and it was like so crazy 
I am only on episode two, and I think I might rewatch the first episode, but I can just tell by the first episode that I'm going to be locked in. So once we uh, finish this episode, I'm definitely going to go and watch it, and probably until I fall asleep, which is usually really early because I'm old, but <laughs> I am, I do know that uh what's her name i was listening to the don't call me white girl show her podcast and she mentioned it and she was like saying a little bit about uh i guess the synopsis of it and i was like okay i gotta watch this for the you know the real true crime heads i have to really i'm gonna I'm I'm zone in and, and actually focus and sit down and watch it because it <sighs> white families white familying you know, white families with power doing what they do best. Yeah. I'm locked in. So. I really remember when it blew up, like, on TikTok last year. Like, last year, it really, like, took the internet by storm because it almost seemed fake. Like, when I was watching the first episode, I was like, is it, are they for real? Like, but then it's, it's like, I mean... Let's be for real. And if we look at history, they've gotten away with murder time and time again throughout the course of history. So if right. you are the family that runs things in your small town, mm-hmm. you can get away with things. You can and get- they all like held the same position for like generations. Like it's very crazy. Aren't they still in charge? Um, no, because like I think you know what? I can't really tell because I think it's the brother of Alec, Alec, that is running things, but it's not a stronghold anymore because this Netflix series, like everything kind of blowing up, but Alex's, like the blowing up of Alex's story and what like has really gone on is what kind of, like this family is crumbling. Um, So really like if anybody has not seen it or like kind of wants to see it or like has heard about it, it may not be on your side of the like in your country right now on Netflix but the the thing is is that we have our main antagonist Alec Murdoch and his family has basically held this prosecutorial role in Hampton County and they have ran it with an iron fist and they run this town and his children he has two sons the oldest Buster and the youngest uh, Paul and he has a wife named Maggie and from everything you kind of see with this family is that they just run this town and everyone knows it and slowly over the past I would say five years things have been falling literally apart there has been murders there has been um fraud there has been like um attempted a murder like the things that you could just think about like has been happening in this family like this family is so it's so layered and it goes back so far but I would like to like be be known that like the family has no part of this of this docuseries they are not a part of it they do not give any opinion to what is going on they are refusing to make comment but everything that you hear from this show is coming from the perspective of everybody that has been affected of from the crimes and the accused crimes that each person in his family has committed. Alex Murdoch 
has been found guilty of double homicide in the death of his son Paul and his uh, wife Maggie. And you're going, and this series kind of goes in depth, like of what also surrounded that for that lead up, and it is really intense, like the most intense like documentary because it's like it's not gruesome, it's not overly detailed where you're getting so much, but it it makes you feel so bad for all the victims involved. I definitely am going to finish watching it. We recommend uh, that you guys watch it because it definitely is a doozy from the first episode that I saw. So that's yeah. our recommendation. High, high recommendation, 10 out of 10. We'll, when we come back, hopefully by next week, we, Alyssa will have watched it and we can kind of go more into it to see like what she really thinks and like what she got from it because... All, all I can say is that the Murdoch, if you ever meet somebody named Murdoch or Murdoch, whatever, however the name, well, run, run, like run, like hightail it out there because they ain't no good. They know no good. Them ginger haired Murdoch know no good. All right. So without further ado, I'm going to um get into this week's episode i want to make a disclaimer that this episode does go into um addiction um depression and murder so if that's not something you're interested in please take a break for this week and please, um and maybe someday soon we'll have an episode that's more to your liking we appreciate any of our listeners that stick around um and they have been sticking around and listening each week all right so Phil Hartman was born on September 24th, 1948, um, in Brantford, Ontario, Canada. So I did not know he was Canadian. I love all Canadians, like Brendan Fraser, love of my life. <laughs> my best friend literally calls. Wait, uh, side note, The Mummy is my probably my favorite movie of all time. Right, like, first of all, let me tell you, like, Juliana, like, this is a side note. Juliana, my best friend, her sexual awakening is Brendan Fraser from the mommy and I'm and I get it and I get it like he was big fine big fine and he's just such such a lovable person he's getting all his flowers right now so amazing he is I'm so glad he's back like acting because he's kind of disappeared for a little bit right and we you know we don't deserve him but I'm happy we got him All right, so Phil um, grew up, he was the fourth of eight siblings uh, to Rupert and Doris Hartman. Rupert was a building supply salesman and Doris was a homemaker. The family moved to the U.S. when Phil was 10 years old and they first went to Connecticut and then moved to the um, West Coast in Southern California. Um, Things were not too um, notable and no two big things happening. Phil was kind of a jokester and like that in school, but nothing really in his childhood was too crazy. It was very laid back. So um, when he gets older and he goes off to college, um, he he drops out after a few years at Santa Monica City College where he studied art. He went on to become a um, roadie to a rock band and with his talent for art, he was designing their album covers. He then took that that talent and returned back to school 
um, at California State University in Northridge in 1972 and focused his degree on graphic arts. Uh, he took that degree and opened a design business, um, I believe, with his brother. And he ended up doing creating cover art for albums for groups like Crosby, Stills, and Nash and 40 other album covers. A few years after going to school, Phil's acting career journey began. He joined the L.A. comedy troupe called The Groundlings. There he met Paul Rubens, or as we may know him as, is uh, Pee Wee Herman. This relationship got him into co-writing and playing in um, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Also, another notable person that was also on Pee Wee's Big Adventure was um, Lawrence Fishburne. He was. He definitely was. I remember uh, seeing an episode and I was like, is that Larry? Don't call him Larry. Though. I heard you. Oh, him. yeah, I heard. Don't call him Larry. <laughs> Don't call him Larry. It gets hot. It gets hot. <laughs> All right. And so um, from there, uh, so he was the leading voice in Mr. Wilson's in... And Dennis the Menace and characters on The Simpsons. Phil understood that he had the voice acting ability. Like he he knew he had the talent for it. So he really took that, took that on. Um, then his big break happened when Phil landed in um a his time on a big old, you know, TV show we know of as Saturday Night Live. No big deal. No biggie. Yeah. Back then. That was that was a huge huge deal. I remember him on some episodes. I'm not gonna lie though, he wasn't my favorite, but he did what needed to be done when he was on the show. Yeah, I think the people that he was generally with are not the most. He was like the most notable of his crew, but he was like not the most like notable of SNL alum that we know. Because as like many people know, like we get Will Ferrell, uh. Oh my God, so many people. Like, oh my God. Uh, Sandler, um, Chris, uh, Eddie Murphy. Like, Chris Rock had worked with him on another show called News Radio, which was a, also a big show that he was a part of. And, you know, he really spent his time cultivating a voice and people really enjoyed him. Um, he did eight seasons of um, SNL. And he, which he lent his voice in impersonating Bill Clinton, Barbara Bush, Ronald Reagan, and Charleston Heston. Um, these are some old school. Bill Clinton is a former president. Um, if many people don't know, and Ronald Reagan as well. So that also like, was like crazy to me because that means like SNL has always been doing political skits. So when people like. Yes like <clears throat> Trump be talking shit like you know they were just ragging on him it's just like no they've been doing this type of of nature of like messing with like people it's not nothing brand new so now I want to touch base on Phil his personal life so we understand his professional life and we get like, okay, like he's having a slow but steady rise to fame. Like his voice is being known. He's coming on a major, more major network. Um, and he's getting out there with more roles. But what's going on with Phil? So Phil 
was not single this whole time. In 1970, he married Gretchen Lewis for, and he was married for two years. Um, then he married um, uh, Lisa Sh uh, Strain or Jarvis um, in 1982, um, and they were married for three years. And then lastly, he's married to Brian um, Amdel. Uh, she is the other person as a part of this episode, so we're going to get into her in a minute. Her name so, is Brian? Yeah, or Bryn? Bri yeah, Brian. Yeah, it's pronounced Brian. Huh. Like a girl, Brian. B-R-Y and then... Oh, no, that's Bryn. It's Bryn? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's Bryn. Oh, my bad. Or whatever I Bryn. I was like, <laughs> Brian? Yeah. You know, you know, some sometimes in other languages, like certain names, I was like, oh, it's my Brian. Maybe like it's like, okay. Yeah. I am my okay, so it's Bryn. Okay. So Bryn Omdel. Mind you, here's this also other thing. That's not her real name. So Bryn went um some name changes, but we'll, we'll get into that. So some of also just so everybody knows some more notable roles that we may know um, Phil Hartman from is like Pee Wee's Playhouse as Captain Carl, Ducktales as Captain Fry, Tailspin as Ace London, Animatrix as Dan Anchorman, uh, Ren and Stimpy as Sid, um, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, Tom Berry Kids Show. As Calabasas Cow. Uh, <laughs> he did two voices on Dennis the Menace, the animated series. Uh, he did George Wilson and Henry Mitchell. Um, he did Sergeant Blicko. He did Kiki's Delivery Service as Gigi and Conehead and Jingle All the Way. So these all weren't straightforward. So some were from like the um, late. Um, mid to late 80s and um and 90s work so so and he also did so many other voices like there was like a crazy big list like it it, it just went on uh, delivery service you took me back listen that was my drawing i was like okay okay getting into and that's not really 100 percent too shocking because i think um like a lot of people got into anime like and being an anime voice actor was like also big like you know you couldn't lend your voice to american animation you go to japanese anime it's always gonna pay it's crazy how it's gotten more i don't want to say more popular because there was always those of us who were into anime but it's definitely gotten more like mainstream yeah it's definitely more mainstream like it's definitely more in the culture like for example Meg the Stallion like she's very known for loving anime Michael B. Jordan loves anime Jonathan Majors loves anime like so many black like and I have to mention like the black stars that just love anime so it's just like and the people that we consider the cool people like because mm -hmm. I remember being a kid and like it was like I used to watch anime in secret and they used to call like the people that watch anime so weird and strange yep. and I used to love it like it, it used to come on I know Showtime had some Encore 
um because they used to show the studio ghibli which kiki's delivery services for, is part of is um part of that so they were part of encore so i watched princess miyasaki like oh my god spirited away it was like so much going on like it was and cartoon network of course had this huge like anime at night stuff so and being a voice actor for it because they needed american voice actors because the way you um like say certain words you just needed that and you know the translation and the expression like so a lot of american actors found their market in that field um so that was good but yeah. like yeah. it was it, it was it's so good to also see like that phil like was just like he was so diverse and kind of what he did like but he did a lot of kids stuff so as you can tell like he, he had a love for children and, and the work but you know because his career had kind of been building in like the 70s and early 80s he had not had a chance like with his first two marriages to have children um something to note is that it is very known that Phil's marriages would burn high but fizzle out quick so that's why they only lasted a few years his relationship with Bren was actually the longest marriage he had for 11 years um so but Phil eventually did have children with um Bren uh he had a boy and a girl named Sean and Virgin B-I-R-G-E-N that's I was what saying, I said, virgin. Virgin. And like Phil loved his kids. Like, and Bryn really went into being a mother 1010%. Like they were like they loved their kids. Like no one could take that from them. Some things to note about Phil Hartman's personality is that as much as he was the comedic personality that we saw on SNL each week or saw on TV or um, or listened to, he did have some quims. So Phil um, was known to have two parts to him, according to his um, ex-wife, Lisa Jarvis, as she was known at the time, described him as two parts, which were the entertainer and the recluse. Um, that when he was performing, that was Phil. Like, that was him and his whole, and he was able to be his truest personality. But behind closed doors, he would, could be very isolated, introverted, and a recluse. So one incident that she talks about, and I wouldn't say incident, but one event that really kind of sealed the deal that was the end of their marriage was, it was the first year that they were married, and it was like their anniversary time, and she came in trying to be sexy, trying to, you know, get some lingerie, and wear, like, a, you know, a little robe, and she took it off, and she was, like, trying to, like, be sexy to him, and he was just like, must you? Really? <gasps> I would have died. And she said no, and then got off of him, went over to the side of the bed, put her robe on, and read a book for the rest of the night. I would have cried. Literally, and she said that that's when she knew like their marriage was over. And there, although there are no details on his first marriage, uh, I would say that like a lot of that was the same. And, and it just seems like this was a man who was like, he would get into relationships where he loved really hard in the beginning. Like, he knew how to get you. Like, he knew how to be charismatic, this charming personality. But the 
another part of his nature was that he just wasn't he just like nah, okay he just don't care after a while and and that could be and that could be disheartening especially when you love someone and then you want to please someone of of that going on so now we get into Bryn Amdahl's backstory. She was born in 1958 on April 11th in um, River Falls, Minnesota to engineer Donald uh, Jean Amdahl um, and a retail store owner, Constance Faye Amdahl. She was uh, one of four children and she was had what was described as a fun-loving personality, but she could be a bit of a troublemaker. Um, her father like described her as somebody who could like just get in trouble. She would always start the fun, and she, you know, her um, her siblings, uh, Greg, um, who we hear about a lot through, who we'll hear from a lot throughout this um case, says describes their childhood as being idyllic. Growing up, um. After like she grew up, um, Brim went on to um, get into modeling. Um, she even did sw um, swimsuit modeling for Catalina Swimwear, and I feel like for some reason I remember Catalina Swimwear because I right. feel like it went out in the nineties. I think it went out in the nineties, and I'm gonna and I don't know where, but I'm gonna look it up and see like who I remember from Catalina. So, and she was beautiful, like, Brim, like, she was what you would call, like, she was, like, a knockout. Like, pictures I've seen of her with Phil, like, she's bl this blonde-haired, beautiful face, like, body to die for, just bomb. Um, but some things to note is, like, before she was married to um, Phil, she was married before, and it only lasted two years. During that time, she went from Vicky to Bryn, and her ex-husband basically described it as not knowing what name she would come up from, from like, today. Like, who are you? He would joke and say, like, who are you going to be today? And it seemed like she was finding herself. Oh, so this wasn't multiple... This wasn't dissociative identity disorder. She just was trying to figure out like who she was. Yeah. And, and you know, it's common for people to do that, but like it kind of felt like she was just <laughs> who she was and she wanted to be more than what she was. And, and you kind of get that sense of it as we get into her relationship with Phil. So um, Bryn fought with difficulties um, notable with um, use of cocaine and alcohol. Her brother Greg try had tried to get her help and and it didn't seem to work. Um, she was Bryn had dealt with issues with her anger. One of a notable incident of her anger really coming out was so Phil and his second wife Lisa remained friends. And he had basically said about like how he had like a, just kind of had told her that he had a baby, like they had a baby, and like she had sent a letter congratulating them and joked like, "Oh, they can call me Aunt Lisa," like blah blah blah. Bryn went off the handle. She wrote a four-page seething letter that basically talked about, and I would quote, ripping out Lisa's eyes and saying the f away from her family like threats it, it it just it non-stop um she wrote a letter mm -hmm. she didn't even call and say hey like you call me on lisa like she wrote a letter 
babe. Like it wasn't that deep. And it was a, like she was very like it seemed like she had some jealousy, some anger, and like you know that could also be dealing with like her feelings of like I. There is like notes of that she also felt a lot of jealousy. So one of the big things that she felt jealous about was um Phil's career. Like she felt like she wanted a to be a bigger name than what she was because she was tired of being Phil Hartman's wife. And oh. even though he got tried to get her into roles and do things, it just wasn't enough. And he really and he really had nothing that he could really just help like help her do. Like it's only so much this man could do. And it's and 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 I'm also gonna say this like it was kind of like as her as their as her star as his star rose, she felt like she was dimmed. And that just wasn't the case. Like I feel like after a while, like she had fears of getting old. Um, that was something like one of her friends had brought up that she always felt insecure about aging and her addiction. Um, like even though she had got clean uh, after doing rehab stints and stuff like that, their marriage felt just was rocky. Like throughout the years, like even with the kids and stuff like that, because of her temper, it was times when she would just hit on Phil and he would have to defend himself and get her off of him. Um, she was just not a like a happy person. So she really and it was believed that before the um that during the incident that we will be going over in a few moments that she had gotten back into cocaine use and that she had um pretty much like started back up with her addiction and still had was threatening that he would leave her if the addiction continued like if like she continued to do drugs like he was just sick and tired of it because he had seen her through so much stuff and he was just so tired um, at this point in time, um, on May 28th of 1998, both um, Shane and Brim were in the home and it was like the middle of the night. Police were called um, by a man named Ron Douglas, a friend of Brim's, and to report a murder. He stated that Brim had come over in the early hours of the morning um, confessing to murdering Phil Um he did not believe her at first. It wasn't until she laid down um, to like kind of fall asleep that she that her that her bag had fell and a gun had fell out of it. Um, an another source did say though that it was believed that he went inside of her bag and potentially it was to see if she had any drugs in there because he he probably he thought that like oh like she's just probably taking pills because at the time she was taking pills like she was taking um Zoloft and she was known to mix that with alcohol um and he had gotten rid of the gun and he then rode with after she had woke up after a few hours of sleeping he rode with her back to the house and went in the house with her he went into the master bedroom and that is when he found he saw um phil's body laying in um pool of blood in the bed it seemed from ron's um description that um that bren had shot him while he was sleeping and defenseless uh, it was a pure execution, as many would say. Um, it's, what a it's way a, to go. 
like after such a a spirited life well we only saw what we saw on tv um but you bring so much joy to people and then that's how you go that's so sad it it literally was like the craziest thing because if um she was saying like to ron that she doesn't know why she did it that um when they had rode over to the house, so Bryn had rode over in her own car to the home, to his apartment, and then, like, when he followed her back, he followed her back in her in his car. And so, she, while in the car, called someone and said, like, you know, telling them what she did. She was speaking, like, like really crazy, like, she was not, she just seemed, like, really off, um, both to Ron and the friend on the phone. Um, police um, get to um, the Encino community in which uh, Phil and Bryn live and before the police uh, can get into the home Bryn locked and barricade herself within the room um, and before they could even get inside a gunshot had went off Shane and um, Virgin were who was Shane 6 and Virgin who was um Shane nine and Virgin, who was six, were in the home. Police got to them and got them to safety, got them out. And then they went into the master bedroom where they found uh, uh, Phil Hartman laying on the bed and with um, two gunshot wounds um, to his body. And a, they saw that Bryn was laying next to him herself with a gunshot wound to her head. Get the cuss out of here. That is another baby's. Listen, um, it is also uh, it's it's it was crazy because um, so basically the kids when um they had gotten out of the situation, I'm guessing like they they no one really knew what how much as they knew, but they knew that they were just dealing with a lot and apparently a relative had took them and it was they took them to a park like it was the morning of and they had took them to the park uh they asked could they take them out and take them to the park and like they had basically said you know I don't have a mommy or a daddy anymore and it was really it was really traumatic um we don't have a clear diagnosis of what Brim was going through, but Zoloft is an antidepressant. Um, and I believe definitely she was probably de- was dealing with really bad depression. Um, yeah, most definitely. Her brother Greg um, went on to sue Pfizer, the brand that does um, give out Zoloft that, for Zoloft for the side effects that he believes caused the violence. However, uh, he did. However, Pfizer did not um, admit to any wrongdoing, but he was awarded a hundred thousand dollars. It is not known. I did not find if he gave any of the money, split any of the money to the children. The children were put into the custody of Bryn's sister Kathy, and he's in the Midwest, away from California, um, away from all the craziness. Shane went on to become. Um, an uh an artist and virgin be um uh, opened a business she got married recently she also commemorated like um to her father's 74th birthday and she like thanked everybody for so loving him as the characters he was and 
and you know she thanked him and she just showed a lot of love and it, it's just great to see that she still had a good life we don't know all of the things that they necessarily went through growing up or any of the things that you know sh they may have been able to see on their own because they where they grew up like the tabloids were pretty big and the internet started getting more out there as they got older so definitely I know that they probably had to create their own story because they were old enough to have their own like what they remember from their parents and who their parents were and as I said like uh Bryn as much as she was this woman who murdered her husband for really no apparent reason she loved her kids like she loved her kids a lot and her and Phil had came up with a um in their will they wanted Kathy to have them so she, Kathy was always going to have the children if something were to happen to them and Kathy was given fifty thousand dollars and the children I believe were given like the property of um the house and like any of uh Phil's royalties uh any of Phil's like money and royalties or whatever because everything was going to go to Bryn Bryn had was getting everything but because Bryn and him are gone they go instantly to the children. So that is the crazily in, intense case of Phil Hartman, the man with a thousand voices, as he was called. Um, what do you think, Alyssa? I was going to say his. it seemed so, so intense, like, like you said before about his relationships like they burned hot and then they fizzled out that's how I feel like like his 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 death story went like it, it was like real intense and then it was over and it's just so like it's so sad especially for the kids who are left behind to have to deal with that and not only did, do they have to deal with the fact like my mom murdered my dad um they had to see that like mm -hmm. I can't imagine being an adult having to see that, but as two little kids and you have to like you 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 witness that or you have to see that after math is crazy. And but I am glad another like happy ending for the kids. Cause remember when we was talking about Ray Caruth, his son got to, you know, is living his full life. And now we have these two folks, these two kids who are living their full life. So I'm I'm happy for them and I hope they got the therapy that they needed um and the support from their family that was left and that they got to grow up somewhat normally but it's just sad and I wanted to while yes she probably was suffering with depression I don't know why bipolar keeps coming to mind but I would have to know more about her but yeah like it definitely seemed like like she just had I don't think she was ever clearly done. It seemed that she probably to a happy doctor mm -hmm. who just like to give her medication. Um, in my personal opinion, I think that instead of suing Pfizer, I would have sued the doctor who prescribed her medication because I would have looked through like the medical records if they knew that like of her history if she ever got um urine test screenings like samples done just to know like because it's one thing to get somebody Zoloft it's another thing for them to be having Zoloft and you know they have addictive personality and 
you got to be careful. It's a slippery slope we do. And then Zoloft is not a one one trick pony. Like Zoloft is very strong, and you have to you have to calculate everything with like mental health medication. You have to calculate that. Like it's it's not a one hit wonder. Like I went through, this is like my third medication I've been on that I've had. So like, and everything causes different reactions in everybody. But like those, the, the people, the makers of um, Zola Pfizer company do deny that violence is an offset of like a side effect for uh, Zoloft. And, and I believe that too. I believe Zoloft can make you more depressed. I believe that antidepressants, if not taken correctly, can make you depressed. I think that there was definitely some underlying issues she had going on. Um, and so we know from where we used to work and um, obviously I'm in the mental health field, but like you get a psych evaluation done. So I'm curious to know, like, um, did this, like you said, I went to the doctor because did the doctor do a full psych evaluation or did she come and say I'm depressed? And the doc was like, oh, let me give you some questions. From Zolo. Right. Okay. I would be curious to know, and excuse my little co-host, she's teething, so she's very expressive right now, but um, I would be curious to know what those, like you said, what those medical records look like, because you're not supposed to just prescribe without doing a full evaluation. Like she should have gotten a full workup done. And some of those things I feel like would have shown up in, the, in an assessment. So I'm wondering like what, what that paperwork looked like, but of course we won't know. Yeah. Like, and it seemed like, like I said, like she had went to rehabs outside of the, of the state and she had, you know, probably some other, Met, like medical visits and things like that so it seems though that she probably had um continue like it seems to me that she had people that were trying to address her her mental health but I don't feel like they were addressing it adequately and also she needed um addiction support like that she needed support with her addiction because that was a big part and because her mental health, like, I mean, yes, you can get somebody medication, but was she receiving counseling? Exactly. Because her PCP, your primary, if you don't know, um, they can prescribe you your mental health medication, but they're not qualified to do that. Yes, that is out of their wheelhouse of expertise. I think that's <laughs> their scope of practice exactly so your your primary care doctor can prescribe you certain medications but the a psychiatrist has the good stuff like they can prescribe yeah. you the good stuff and it's nine times out of ten um more effective not to say what your primary care doctor can prescribe you is not going to be effective but for people who have um more severe for I'm looking for another word, but who have more concerning to them uh, mental health issues, the psychiatrist can prescribe better stuff. Right, because they can also do a thing where, like, you're taking... So, for example, as a woman, like, some people... Like, as a woman, we have our menstrual cycle, and we might have... 
moods where like our depression or anxiety symptoms could get worse during your menstrual. They could literally do something that's almost as if you're taking birth control where your your medication's at 50 milligrams, but then when you are during your period and you got more of those intense emotions, 100 milligrams. So dose you like that. Like there's a way to do it that they can get cleared and it will be okay. Your PCP will not know to do that. They just don't have the, they do not have the capacity to take on such a role. Another thing I think is really big that I don't think was definitely addressed is the fact that she was jealous of her husband. And, you know, she, that, like, she was angry at him and she was angry at people around him and that anger she was had in her. And I don't know, like, like I don't know why because you know what I do know why because back in the 90s and we're only seeing the more recent stuff is a lot of people when they were do giving out psych meds they may have not prescribed them to go to counseling and people may have not gotten continued counseling when they were prescribed Zoloft and it was it's crazy to say this but like it's it's really it's just one of those things where you're need a little bit of everything you need the counseling to deal with the therapy to deal with the the anger the depression the you know jealousy she may feel towards her husband's career her maybe insecurities that she may have about herself and also to deal with the addiction then she probably needs the Zoloft to offshoot those feelings that she may feel of depression but then she also needs to get into drug and alcohol to get someone to help her in order to understand where she's coming from, where she is building vices and to support her through her journey. So this comes like, this is when we talk about we're addressing mental health and drug and addiction and, and things that it's not a one size fits all approach. You have to come at it from every angle because people need support from all angles. It's not just one reason that you're doing something. It's just exactly. not. And I think that we don't often address um, the whole person. So I like the agency that I work for because we try to address the person as a whole and not just like where a lot of agencies will just address parts of a person. So therapy is more of the long-term solution medication is always just a band-aid mm -hmm. for the bigger healing that needs to happen and that bigger healing happens in therapy and a lot of times especially back then like you said they were just <laughs> throwing out prescriptions like they've been throwing out prescriptions since the 60s let's understand when the quote-unquote board housewives who really were suffering from depression they were just giving them volumes and 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 whatever else back then they weren't taking their happy pills um, mm -hmm. and especially I can imagine as a celebrity's wife there's a certain level of discretion there's a certain level of um also power I guess you will probably get from being like a celebrity's wife or having a bunch of money to be able yeah. to say hey doc I'm feeling this way give me the meds and of course you know 
I want to give doctors this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that doctors will say, hey, I'm giving you this prescription, but I think you should talk to someone, leaving it open like that and not being like, in order for me to continue giving this prescription to you, I need you to go see a therapist, like making it more of a mandatory thing to get the prescription as opposed to something that is optional or just like, hey, just so you know, I'm giving you this like suggestion. It should have been more of a mandatory thing like it kind of is now, like how you can't go to, especially community-based like behavioral agencies, um, mm-hmm. can't get psychiatry and medication without also being active in therapy. And I know for the place I work at now, you cannot be actively in your addiction without and 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 get um therapy where I work without being in a drug and alcohol program. So if you are currently in addiction and you're not in a drug and alcohol program, you have to get in one before you can seek therapy because all of those things go hand in hand. Like you said, should have gotten treatment for the substance abuse, should have gotten treatment for uh including therapy and or counseling for the drug and alcohol. She should have also gotten mental health like therapy in addition to whatever medication management she was getting from a psychiatrist. And I um I would bet money that that would have been really helpful because she clearly someone has an opinion. Needed. Um my last I want to know is like I really hope that the children got counseling when they were living with their aunt. Um, although like although like I really do believe that she gave them the best life life that you know that she could, that she supported them. I just think with the whole situation that the children did need counseling and therapy in those moments because one, it was a huge transition from having both their parents to having neither one of their parents to such violence being the reason and having the change of moving from where they like they did the whole thing is like they also did move a quite like a few times like at one point they were living in New York and they moved back to the um LA area but like this move like where their whole lives they lived in the Midwest it was like that's a big transition and like they had to deal with a lot and I wonder if they ever really got to see Phil's family because he comes from like a big family eight siblings and like he was the middle child so like you know they had lots of aunts and uncles that like I know loved and cared about them and I know it probably was difficult because there was the family of the woman that took that family member away and and so like it's so much we kind of don't know because there's a lot of privacy and I think that that they were able to do that in private so I'm hoping and I'm I will be happy to know if like they would they had got counseling and that you know they had figured out a way to navigate and how did they navigate such a situation because many people don't deal with that and it's very it's it's interesting to see like what that was like to navigate those relationships and navigate family counseling and if they received counseling and what what their life was like going forward um yeah like i i'm very happy to know that they uh shane and uh virgin lived a really good life as much as possible and had family around um 
And that really is all this week, guys. We are done with episode five of uh, season three of Crime at the Family Table. Um, And we will see you guys again next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.